Purple, get ready to roll indeed. Welcome to College and Kimball. If this is your first time joining us, welcome, welcome. If it's you're joining us for the second installment, welcome back. Again, we appreciate all of the listens. If you want to find us on Twitter and give us a follow, we certainly appreciate it. It's college underscore Kimball. And if you do give us a follow, you'll find all of our Twitter accounts linked out on the account description page there. I am your host, Jeff Burkhardt, joined by our three mainstays here, Clint, a.k.a. the K-State Fan 2, Alex Beth, and Justin Nutter. So, guys, we'll briefly hit on it. We talked about 2009 last episode. Now we're getting ready to pivot into 2010. Plenty of fun storylines to talk about as far as football goes with this season. Uh, you get to see a lot of the the pieces of those great teams that we saw in 2011 and 2012 start to make some contributions on this team. Uh, but the much bigger event, which we'll dive into here shortly, was obviously that this was the end of the, the Big 12 as we knew it at that point in time with Nebraska and Colorado departing the conference after this 2010 season. So we'll touch on that here momentarily, but let's take a look back, though, at 2009 for your Kansas State Wildcats. Again, K-State goes six and six, ends up going four and four in Big 12 pay, uh, play. The Cats do miss out on a bowl game due to two of the six wins being against one double a competition. So the cats are though in contention for the big 12 North in that season, all the way up to the final game, they end up dropping a 17 to three decision to the Nebraska Cornhuskers. So high stakes in that game. I know Alex, you touched on it. high stakes in the sense that you win, you win the North, you go to the big 12 championship. You're guaranteed a spot in a bowl game. You lose no bowl game, you're staying at home. And unfortunately, that's what ended up happening with that 2009 team. So the Cats go six and six and miss a bowl game, but do get back to 500 overall. Uh, nice improvement as we compare it to what we saw the last uh, couple of years of the Ron Prince era in 2007 and 2008. So we look forward, though, now to the 2010 season. K-State does pull in a recruiting class ranked 63rd by rivals. They did improve from 92nd the year before so a nice little bump there and then 76th on 24 7 sports unfortunately that was last in the big 12 and clint i'll pivot to you i know recruiting is your wheelhouse and i'll let you hit on some of the high level guys that k-state ended up landing with that 2010 class uh, i was ranked a little bit higher but not a great class when you look back on it as far as the scholarship players go they did get adam davis who was a big part of those 2011 2012 teams uh, out of the JUCO ranks, they got uh, a few other JUCO guys. Ray Kebble, uh, Fouquetti would be on the offensive line that year. Then they did get Trey Walker and Curry Sexton out of the high school ranks. Uh, but the real story that year was the walk-ons. They were able to get Randall Evans, B.J. Finney, Ryan Mueller, Jonathan Truman. Definitely one of the better walk-on classes all time at K-State. No doubt about that. Yeah, Randall Evans, as we'll hit on in a couple episodes here, ends up going into the NFL. Trey Walker makes a couple of pretty key plays for this defense uh, and also makes some contributions as a true freshman for K-State. So a lot of great, uh, you know, again, we talk about walk-on culture, and this is really kind of the class, you could say, that kind of spearheaded that that shift and that big push by, by Snyder, by the staff, and trying to get at walk-ins reintegrated into the program and this was a big uh big class that did just that so looking uh 
to some of the departures from that 2010 squad. Josh Moore uh, does get taken in the fifth round of the NFL draft, 141st overall by the Chicago Bears. Uh, he did end up finishing second on the team in tackles in 2009 with 64 and then sixth in tackles for loss with only uh, with four and a half. Only ended up being honorable mention all Big 12, but did ultimately end up get taken in the NFL draft that year. Now, unfortunately, a couple other guys, Lamarck Brown does leave the program. Uh, we were, I think, Nutter, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this with you here. I think we were all looking forward to seeing what he could do in his senior season, hoping maybe that the light bulb would have gone off, but unfortunately, it doesn't end up happening. Yeah, he was, I know it's a term thrown around a lot, and unfortunately for him, it was kind of his defining term, first guy off the bus. You know, he was de- he looked the part. I think everyone expected a lot of him. You know, he was super highly rated coming in. I think at the time, one of the high- highest rated high school recruits we'd had in years. And uh, unfortunately, it just never materialized for him. You know, he uh, not necessarily by his own doing. You know, they never really could find a spot for him. We saw a little bit at uh, saw a little bit at receiver. We saw some flashes there. Got some time at running back uh, during the uh, the the debacle that was Ron Prince's final year. But, uh, you know, unfortunately never really could stick at any spot. Ended up heading up north to, I think, um, I had it and I lost it, Minnesota State, I think. And uh, actually ended up getting a shot in the NFL. So, you know, definitely the athleticism was there. Um, I think we were hopeful it was going to uh, come to fruition a little more than it did. But unfortunately, it just was not in the cards for Lamarck in Manhattan. True story. And then you couple that loss with Brandon Banks and Brandon Banks is the one that we that K-State felt much more so as far as what he actually did contribute uh, ends up racking up over 1800 yards receiving in just two seasons and a lot of that damage done in 2008 when Josh Freeman was throwing in the ball. But nevertheless, a pretty big departure there. Brandon Banks ends up running a 4-3-3 at the NFL Combine. And gets uh, does have a cup of coffee with the Washington Redskins. Spent some time there as a kick returner. Uh, a couple other guys that we'll talk about as far as departures go. Jeffrey Fitzgerald. I think all of us and uh, were a little surprised that he didn't end up getting drafted just because of the size and the measurables. He ended up leading the team in sacks and tackles for loss in 2009. But he doesn't get. Uh, he is not drafted after the 2009 season. Uh, John Hulick ended up ranking fifth on the squad in tackles in 2009. Still a great contributor for that uh, defensive linebacker, as well as uh, Ula Pomeli, another guy who ends up uh, exhausting his eligibility with K-State. And then a couple other guys on the offensive side, Grant Gregory, of course, a warrior for K-State uh, and, and playing with a bum shoulder much of the season. Uh, but he after doing some spot duty early on in his career and ultimately taking on the starting role, pretty much the entire conference play for, uh, for that 2009 squad. He is uh, done after a sixth year of eligibility with K-State and then Jerron Mastrud at the tight end and then Nick Stringer at offensive tackle. So those are the departures from this roster. And now with that being said, we've talked all the football. We want to move forward kind of into the off season, which we, uh, in most cases, we're rarely if ever going to talk about an actual off season, but uh, the big 12 off season for the 2010 season was obviously quite notable. Uh, main reason being Colorado and Nebraska leaving the conference uh, and after very long-standing memberships tracing those roots back to the the days of the big six and it was it was tough to see that and I, I 
was fortunate enough to wit- witness it firsthand. I was actually interning for, for 810, and this was one of the events that we got to go and cover, and we were kind of the the warm bodies that got to hold microphones up to, to Dan Beebe and all the university presidents and chancellors and everybody who was there in attendance. So we got to see all this really transpire before my eyes, and I'll, I'll say from my perspective, it was very difficult to watch because I had grown up only knowing the Big 12, and I felt like there there was – Maybe, again, this is some naivete on my part, but I always felt like this was a great football conference that had great potential with with the teams that the Big 12 had absorbed, those brands that they had absorbed from the Southwest Conference, specifically Texas and Texas A&M, merging that with Oklahoma and Nebraska from the Big uh, from the Big 8. And then we have a big brand uh, at the time in the 90s, K-State was a very big brand at, at college football and was one of the preeminent programs in the country. And I felt like we had such a, a, a great rapport and so such great rivalries that had really developed over the course of the, the years from 1996 on. But unfortunately, Nebraska and Colorado opt to leave for the Pac-10, uh, at that point, the Pac-10 and the Big Ten, respectively. And uh, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, Alex, did we have any feelings of ill will towards Nebraska more so than Colorado here. What were your thoughts and feelings after after seeing all the events unfold in Kansas City and, and, and learning that those schools would be leaving the Big 12? Yeah, I definitely feel um, Colorado was the school that, you know, we can kind of take you or leave you. Uh, the only ill will there is they made the first move and that kind of, you know, shakes the foundation of the conference. And as a K-State fan, you're you're kind of worried about if the conference falls apart, where where do we end it up? Um, Nebraska, I think that one stings more because, you know, they're a couple hours up the road and you feel like there's a little bit of a rivalry there, you know, um, going back into the late 90s, early 2000s. They just felt like more of a loss for the, pro, or for the conference uh, than Colorado. But, yeah, definitely more of a more bitter feelings towards Nebraska, I would say. Yeah, I think you, you raise a very good point too. That was, and just looking at all of us, we're guys in our, in our mid to mid thirties here. We're not late thirties yet. Let's not bring up age here, but we've, um, that was what we grew up watching was the, those big K state Nebraska games, Bill Snyder, Tom Osborne. And, and I, I think you, you, that that stung me the most is because I, I, I remember how pivotal that game was, how big that game was, how much I got up for that for that game as a fan. And I know I was younger, but that was still a game that meant a whole lot to me. And, and the other question that you raise is a very valid one. And Clint, I didn't know what you were feeling knowing uh, after Nebraska and Colorado depart. What are your thoughts on, and how are you feeling in terms of K-State's viability moving forward and the big 12's viability moving forward. Cause at that point in time, I was concerned that we might not have this conference here. Maybe and it might not, have, it might not exist tomorrow. Yeah. There was a lot of uncertainty uh, where K state was going to end up. I remember hearing that as long as we stick with, with KU because of their basketball problem program, we'd be okay. And you know, of course, KU fans are like, ah, screw K state. Uh, we'll, we'll just go to the PAC 12 or the big 10 and we'll be fine. Um, yeah, it was it was a little bit of scary times for K-State. Uh, like Alex said, once once uh, Colorado left, a lot of us were just like, ah, that's fine, screw them. But they're the ones that really set everybody on that path and the reason we lost Nebraska and lost a great rivalry. 
And Nutter, I'll ask you, um, and, and Alex and Clint, uh, feel free to weigh in after this. What was the conference you didn't, uh, you least wanted to see K-State end up in? I mean, anything if the big of, if the Big Twelve had dissolved if the Big Twelve had dissolved, what was the conference you wanted? You least sure, wanted sure, to see yeah. Uh, anything outside of what we now call the Power Five, really, and you know, obviously, I think that the big concern is we were headed to the Mountain West or the Conference USA or you know anything like that. You know, if there wasn't going to be a home for us, but uh, obviously it didn't work out that way, and we're 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 still here. But uh, yeah, that was my biggest concern was that we were going to lose that. What is now, I don't even remember what we called it at the time, but what is now power five status, you know, that was, seemed like it was a real possibility there for a minute. So obviously happy it didn't go that way. That was my thought was like, man, maybe if, if we, because, <laughs> and this is a thing that I just remember was Chip Brown. And this is really kind of the first time I remember a media personality kind of taking off on Twitter. And, and I, I just detested every second of it because this jerk off just getting on Texas is going to the Pac-12 and they're taking these schools with them. Oh, they're going to the SEC. Oh, they're going independent. All the and we're getting all the money, all the money, and just being very again cavalier, very Texas about it and everything. And I was just running through all those scenarios in my head and thinking, if Texas leaves and all and, and this all precipitates the way that he says it's going to happen, so K State's left here holding the bag with KU, Iowa State, and Maybe Oklahoma State, maybe not. You heard, you know, you would hear Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are going to the SEC. You would hear Oklahoma, the the big Texas schools and the big Oklahoma schools are going SEC. They're going Pac-12. So many different conferences, and I was just terrified of K-State being lumped into some what amalgamation of what is now the the AAC and being lumped in there with like again the USFs, the UCFs, SMU, Houston, and now we're and, and again I. I hated the thought of that, but fortunately, as we we touched on here, that that ultimately none of that comes to fruition. K State and the Big Twelve does remain united, and the, the Longhorn Network and the media rights agreement that t- Texas ends up striking with ESPN and the big payday they cash in there, I think, is a big reason why Texas elected to stick, so they could just keep all that money uh, for themselves. And while I was a little frustrated at the end of the day, you kind of do have to take a step back and realize that was probably a key cog and a key reason as to why this conference stayed together. And thankfully it does. And we move, uh, move now and to the beginning of the 2010 season, and we can dive back into football here, the thing that we're here to talk about. And we'll look first at the depth chart for the Wildcats and some of our big contributors here. And Alex, we'll go ahead and start with you. I'll let you take us through the offensive side of the ball. Daniel Thomas, most notably, obviously coming back off of that big season in 2009 when he was the offensive newcomer of the year. Yep, we got a first team all Big 12 and offensive newcomer of the year coming back for his senior year, Daniel Thomas. Uh, We lose Grant Gregory, so the reins are all with Carson Kaufman. At that point, you know, Colin Klein's the backup quarterback with Sammy Lemure, I believe. And, you know, no one knows what Colin Klein's going to turn out to be. So you kind of feel like Kaufman's got to get through the season healthy for sure. Uh, William Powell, a very, let's say, he didn't get a lot of carries, but he did a lot with the carries that he got. Uh, He was a pretty good backup, I feel like. Uh, We lose some receivers, Brandon Banks and Lamarck Brown. 
but then we get eligibility for Chris Harper, transfer from Oregon, and Broderick Smith, from, transfer from Minnesota, both had to sit out the year before. Uh, Aubrey Quarles, I believe, missed the, the previous year with injury, and he's back for, I believe, his senior year. And uh, Adrian Hilburn, who you know, has a pretty uh, memorable play later in the year. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk about that. We'll definitely <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely talk about that. A very noteworthy play happening in a in a big uh, big time bowl game, big time bowl game. So we'll nope. touch on that here as we go through the season in, in short order. Now we'll pivot over to the defensive side of the ball and and Nutter, uh, not just some personnel losses here, but also K State losing coordinator. And I'll let you take it away. Yeah, um, as we'll kind of learn over the next hour or so of this journey, you know, it was not the most uh, memorable year for the defense as a whole. There were, uh, you know, a couple of bright spots. You know, David Garrett really, really kind of took that step forward at what was then, now would be known as the Nickelback. Back then, uh, Bill referred to it more as the Rover. Um, You know, this was really when Ty Zimmerman started to uh, cement himself on the back end of that defense. But unfortunately... uh, the, the front two lines of defense were just not as short up as they'd been before, and Prent trying to break in a new coordinator on top of that uh, really kind of spelled recipe for disaster, as we'll soon find out. Um, you lose, um, obviously we mentioned Josh Moore being an early declare to the NFL um, on the back end, but then up front you lose uh, Jeff Fitzgerald, who led the team in sacks, led the, teams in, led the team in uh, tackles for loss, and uh, unfortunately no one really – filled those shoes uh all due respect to ralph goodry and prezel brown but uh the they're the bodies just weren't there this year and um you know you're you're also breaking in a a converted running back and jarrell childs at linebacker so again arthur brown's there but he's on the bench can't do anything to help this year so um just you know pretty much a year to forget all the way around on the defensive side of the ball not a very memorable unit for sure. And we'll talk about the stats here momentarily. One thing I will say, and Nutter, I think you and I have an accord on this one. Uh, Prezel Brown wore number 46, obviously last name Brown on the back of the jersey. Arthur Brown that season that he had to sit out red shirt also wore number 46. I will believe until the day I die and until Bill tells me that I'm wrong that Arthur Brown was in on multiple plays with this defense where, and he was posing as Prezel Brown. No one will convince me otherwise. Only about 40 pounds difference right there. Nope. Nope. Don't care. <laughs> it happened. I will believe until the day I die. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't take a step back and examine a, a couple things as it relates to the production of the 2010 defense or, or lack thereof. And you really do have to look, first at the transition from 08 to 09 there there was no way the 09 team was going to be any worse than the 08 team that was one of the worst statistical defenses in Kansas State history one of the worst defenses nationally in 2008 giving up over 35 points per game that ranked 111th nationally in scoring defense and giving up just under 480 yards per game. And that was 118th ranking nationally in yards allowed. So again, nowhere to go, but up as, as we transition from Ron Prince to Snyder and out from 08 to 09. So you have that kind of artificial bump that you always see when you have any kind of regime change. And then you couple that with 
the competition that K-State squared off against in 09. Pretty significant downgrade across the board, uh, particularly when you think about conference foes and you think about even the divisional winner in the Big 12 North, Nebraska. Are Zach Lee, Roy Halou, and those guys, are any of them putting the fear of God into you as a defense? No, not really. The, the, the Iowa State team, uh, coached by Paul Rhodes, was quarterbacked by Austin or not. He had Alexander Robinson. Again, not necessarily a, a super dynamic threat there. Cody Hawkins and Tyler Hansen doing quarterback roulette at Colorado. Uh, even that KU team, which was, again, very respectable that year. They finished 5-7 and seven in 09, but they were still a lot of residual talent left over from that Orange Bowl team they had had a few years prior. They still had Jake Sharp and Todd Reesing and Des Briscoe. You had a lot of big-time playmakers on that offense, but even KU took a step back in terms of their production in 2009. So that, coupled with the regime change, there there was no surprise to see K-State make a, a jump statistically. Now, I don't think anybody really anticipated it being quite the jump that it was seeing K-State go from 111th in scoring defense all the way up to 45th in scoring defenses uh, and then going 39th in yards per game nationally. So I don't think anybody expected that, but I think in the same breath, you kind of knew that this was more a byproduct of the schedule and that you were probably going to take not a significant step back, but I think we all knew that the shoe was going to drop for 2010. And particularly when you think about the introduction of so many new players, new starters, uh, particularly in the linebacking core, guys that were very young in their K-State careers. You think about um, Blake Slaughter and Trey Walker getting snaps as freshmen. Jarrell Childs, after making his transition from running back, we start to see him play at linebacker. Terrence Sweeney getting uh, first-time reps uh, as a starting corner and, and defensive line. Also, you lose a stalwart like Jeffrey Fitzgerald and and you didn't really have any great candidates to replace him at end. And you're really just kind of patchworking things together on the defensive line. It's not a surprise that K-State took a step back in 2010, but I think nobody really expected it to be quite as bad as it was. But we'll we'll dive into that as we get towards the end of the season recap here. I think this is a good time to pivot away from the depth chart and actually look forward to the season. And K-State opens up the 2010 campaign with a visit from the UCLA Bruins. Rick Neuheisel coming back to Manhattan for the first time since his days as Colorado head coach in the late 90s. Definitely tickling that nostalgia itch that you might have had. A beautiful picturesque Saturday. K-State, though, really controls this game, which is a weird thing to say because they never really extended the advantage. They, they, they did, however, do whatever they wanted to do offensively, and particularly on the ground. They rushed for over 300 yards as a team. Daniel Thomas goes over 200. William Powell finds the end zone uh, despite only getting a handful of carries in this game, really kind of a recurring theme that we see throughout the season with him. But this one, for for as in control as it was, it was still a one-score contest late. K-State holding on to a slim 17-16 to 16 advantage in the fourth quarter. And then Broderick Smith, and Carson Kaufman hook up on a rollout. Broderick Smith rolls into the end zone, gets a late touchdown to put the Cats up 24-16 to 16 with just two minutes and three seconds left in the game. You think that pretty well is going to ice it. K-State's going to start 1-0. But foreshadowing what we would come to know as the weakest unit on this football team, uh, the defense just craters in a very critical spot, gives up a two-play 
touchdown drive to UCLA as Kevin Prince finds Ricky Marvre for a 29-yard touchdown pass with just a minute 19 left in the game. So it's going to come down to a two-point play. K-State's holding on 24-22, to and we talk about some younger guys making plays for this K-State defense, and we do see Jarrell Childs make a play that really is largely – forgotten not just in this game but really in the context of the season and this ended up being a pretty critical play uh, as we talk about how the 2010 season unfolded yeah when you talk about drill childs usually the play that comes up is a few years later in that 2012 oklahoma game uh this one uh was in a much more critical part of a game that ended up uh maybe deciding it a huge play at the end to break up that two-point conversion so k-state Holds on to a 24 to 22 lead. They co- uh, cover up the onside kick, and then Nutter Daniel Thomas puts the icing on the cake with a big run late in the game and ends up with a career day for K State. That's right. I think K State was honestly just trying to run out the clock. Uh, UCLA, you know, stacked the box, and Thomas found just enough of a crease, 35 yards to the end zone. That actually, uh, that run put him over 200 for the day. So really. Really a nice way to put a bow on that one. So as we said, K-State gets a big 31-22 to win over UCLA. First win over a Power 5 uh, at that point in time, a Power 5 team. And actually, it would be a Power 6 because the Big East was still a thing. I got to correct myself there. Uh, it's, it's crazy to think about how far back that is, the Big East still being a conference back then. But we- K-State gets a big win over a Power 6 team. First time since they had beaten Cal all the way back in 2003, that game that was played at Arrowhead Stadium. So the Wildcats off to a 1-0 and start here. Daniel Thomas again racks up 234 yards, two touchdowns. And uh, William Powell does score a touchdown in this game. And he was, we'll talk about how he was utilized as we move, toward, move throughout the season. But this was another game where, uh, a game where we saw him start to kind of show some flashes at running back and show that he could be a good guy to spill DT. Moving forward, though, K-State moves to 2-0 the following week. They get a 48-24 to win over Missouri State. Uh, not much really to write home about with this game. Uh, K-State does jump out 34-7 to uh, midway through the third quarter and Everybody's pretty satisfied with the way everything's going, but then the second and third team defense lets up quite a bit, and the the Mo State Bears end up scoring 17 points late in this one to make it look a little bit closer. Again, K-State still ends up winning by a pretty comfortable margin here. But this was kind of the sign in my book that this defense might be a little suspect, might. Um, But again, small sample size, wasn't too alarmed at this point, and with that said, we move to the next game, a 27-20 win over the Iowa State Cyclones in Arrowhead. Uh, as I say, never in doubt over Iowa State. This was really, uh, this was early aughts of K-State's streak over the Clones. And Alex, I, I think we're, and honestly the whole group here, I think we're all kind of in the same boat where we have we have a very tightly contested game throughout. But when you look back at this, could you could anybody recall a very memorable play in this game? Which is that's kind of hard to do when you have such a tight game. You usually hang on so many. You think about this play here. Oh, that was such a pivotal moment in the game where K State, you know, got that fumble, got that sack, whatever. But this this was just a game where we never really felt like th- there wasn't really any 
big defining moment in it. In case they just kind of ho hum their way to a one touchdown win. <laughs> Uh, the 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 play that comes to mind for me is the uh, the sack, forced fumble, fumble recovery by uh, Brandon Harold, which seemed to put the game away, but it really didn't. But uh, you know that was a big play late. Um, it's just I believe the the year before at Arrowhead against the the Farmageddon from 2009 was just so memorable, and then there were so many other weird games after this one that this is kind of the the Iowa State game that just doesn't really stick in my memory very well. Clint uh, Nutter, anything that comes to mind on this one? I just wanted yeah. to open it up to you guys. <laughs> Daniel Thomas had a lot of pretty nifty runs in this game. He wasn't breaking them off for 50, 60 yards, but he had a lot of 10, 15 yard runs where he was spinning off defenders, plowing through guys, jumping over people. He ended up with 181 yards in this game which put him at 552 yards after just three games to start off the season. Uh, six touchdowns. The guy was looking like a beast. Yeah, um, you know, Alex kind of alluded to it. It, it lacked the firework play that, that had happened the year before with the block PAT. Um, honestly, when you hear that a, that a rivalry game is dubbed Farmageddon, this is probably the kind of game you would expect, right? You know, relatively low scoring, kind of a grinded out. Last team with the ball, only team that doesn't make a mistake is going to win, and that's pretty much exactly how it played out. It is. Cats uh, and K-State, you'll see this kind of ratio throughout the season. So K-State runs it 50 times, racks up 262 yards on the ground, three touchdowns. Kaufman only throws 12 passes, one of which is picked off and returned for a touchdown for Iowa State. That was kind of the play that really kept the clones in that game because, again, K-State really – had control pretty much throughout this one. So that pick six happens early in the third quarter and Iowa State takes a 14 to 10 lead, but then K-State goes right back, drives it right down the field. Daniel Thomas punches in a one yard touchdown run. And again, K-State really just felt like they, they were never really truly ever behind the eight ball in this one. So the Wildcats pick up a 27 to 20 victory over Iowa State. They moved to three and zero on the season. And that sets us up with a game of another, mem- strangely, this one's probably more memorable than a conference win that, that came the week before, the Central Florida game. Now, most fans probably don't remember the opponent, but this, if you've seen the K-State Stadium weather picture that's that adorned probably many a, a computer background for many years, this is that game. So this game kicks, it was a rooster kick. I remember it very vividly, rooster kick, 11 o'clock. And we end up getting rain delayed pretty early on. And this is just, I remember, and as the fans kind of trickle back in after the rain delay, after the lightning delay is lifted, fans start to trickle back in. It's just humid as hell outside. And this was one that I, again, strangely enough, never really felt nervous about K-State losing, despite the fact that they were pretty well outplayed by Central Florida Florida for a majority of this game. Uh, the Golden Knights beat up K-State on the ground. They rack up uh, well over 200 yards, excuse me, 250 yards on the ground. Jeffrey Godfrey, the starting quarterback for UCF, uh, comes up just one short of 100 in this one. And Clint, I'll start with you. There were some big plays late in this one. 
And, and I and, and again, it's not really the defense that comes to mind. It's it's really offense late in this game coming through, which is something that we didn't really say the year before with K-State, but we actually do start to see the offense deliver in big moments. Yeah, definitely. The the storm is definitely the most memorable part of the game. And anyone who's there has a good story of what they were doing. You know, some people were out in the storm. Not me. I thought for sure the game was going to be called. So I yeah. left and went down to Rusty's and it was pretty empty. Got myself a slab of ribs. Pretty disappointing. But I was able to see a pretty nice play by Carson Kaufman rolling out and finding Aubrey Quarles for a long 50-yard touchdown. Maybe the most memorable play of Quarles' uh, career at K-State. And then uh, Kaufman does engineer a nice go-ahead drive very late in the game, finds uh, Andre McDonald. I remember he started making some plays in the passing game, uh, and I, I remember how excited I was for, for that, too. Just looking like, God, we've got this six-foot-eight monster tight end. This guy's just going to be a matchup nightmare. And we were see- and, and again, the other thing, too, that we were, we were seeing with this team, not just with Andre McDonald, you know, making plays in his, his young career, but also – a lot of younger guys on the defensive side of the ball. Again, we talked about it. Ty Zimmerman, Jarrell Childs, uh, Ralph Gidry. Uh, a lot of these guys are getting snaps as as freshmen, as sophomores, which was really refreshing to see when you when you really think about what Snyder, the 2.0 era, became known as, at least in the later stages. It was nice to see some of the young guys start to get a lot of snaps early in their careers. And, and like we said, though, uh, Andre McDonald makes some big catches on that go-ahead touchdown drive. Carson Kaufman ends up on a roll, uh, doing a little boot, rolling it, rolling out, and ultimately keeping it himself and scoring the go-ahead touchdown. Uh, Nutter, I think you touched on it. A pretty comical play at the very end of this one, if if I remember right. A, a very poor attempt trying to keep the game moving by USF or UCF, excuse me. Yeah, there was a play, and I think it's probably worth noting. Godfrey, if I remember right, was a uh, uh, a converted receiver that they were yes. running out there at yes. quarterback. And uh, K-State, it, it's funny you said he only went for 99 because, like, if I hadn't looked it up myself, I would have swore he went for about 250 that day because mm-hmm. K-State just did not have an answer for him on the ground in several crucial moments. But, yeah, toward the end of the game, there was a play where it – it was third and medium and uh, he, he, he broke for the sideline and, and dove for the sticks, but that dive ended up about four yards short of the marker. And I remember a pretty, uh, pretty animated reaction by the K-State sideline. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. A, a dive coming up about 15 feet short of the sticks. <laughs> uh, you got to commend the effort, you know, <laughs> and, and, this actually ends up being a, a very good UCF team. They end up winning 11 games. They win Conference USA, and uh, they also pop uh, and defeat Georgia in the, uh, excuse me, the Liberty Bowl. So uh, this was a probably when you look at it and take a step step back. We talked about UCLA, and that was a nice win over a power conference opponent. But the Bruins only ended up finishing four and eight in 2010. So this win over UCF is probably the the biggest win of that 2010 season. Now we'll talk about a couple others that K-State picks up along the way here, obviously, as we move forward to the second leg of the season. But uh, we want to pivot now. The Cats are 4-0. We're starting to get some national attention. Bill Snyder coming back, and people are starting to chirp about do it. he's doing it again. We've got another turnaround on our hands. This, is, this team is heading in the right direction. But uh, 
we we come to find uh, against the seventh ranked Nebraska Cornhuskers in a game that was moved to Thursday night that that does not that ends up being that attention and notoriety and it ends up being very short lived and and guys uh, before we get into the game itself uh, I'll start with you Alex what were your feelings leading up to this game I, I remember thinking about that getting that big showcase slot that Thursday night that was still pretty new phenomenon at, at that point in time you, you didn't really see a whole lot of Thursday games uh, but I thought that was a big opportunity for K-State and I thought that was pretty cool to see K-State get that Thursday night slot yeah I agree I you know I know a lot of people don't like the Thursdays or the Fridays I think I prefer not to play on a Thursday but th- at that time I thought like you said it was a good uh good way to get some exposure, kind of fun to do something a little different. And, you know, it was a big production. I think they had like a parachuter that came in and landed in the field and it was going to be our last game against Nebraska. So I really wanted to beat them um, for the last time there. And, you know, kind of looking in in hindsight, that uh, UCF game kind of showed that the defense uh, was going to struggle this year containing the quarterback run game and <laughs> what we what we saw on that Thursday night. And that uh, that might be the understate understatement of the uh, the 2010 season there. Uh, again, a lot of build up to this one. I remember uh, the energy walking around campus that day. And again, it was one of those days that you just got that that cliche bit that you hear. Oh, nobody's going to class. Everybody, you know, people are you know, the students were pulling up to get into the tailgate lots at, you know, six in the morning and all, and all, all the stories that you would hear about it, but it really did have that vibe and that energy, but we get to kick off and things do start out decent case. It gets uh, the ball first, they go down and they end up going for it on a fourth down uh, in Nebraska territory, but Husker defense holds. And again, this is another very strong Nebraska unit. Uh, even after the departure of Indomitian Sioux, uh, this was a great unit that, again, pretty well put the clamps down on the Kansas State offense throughout most of the day. And uh, the Cats are in this one midway through uh, the contest when we get to halftime at 17 to three. And and Nutter, I, I very vividly remember this uh, walking uh, down because uh, I, I was calling this game for the student radio station. I remember walking down in the media area uh, at halftime and. I remember you just came up to me and you said, we're on borrowed time. And then we just parted ways in. And that was that could not have been a more astute observation on your part. Yeah, it. Uh, so the score was about the only thing that made you think there was still any semblance of a chance in that one. Um, and unfortunately, the ticking time bomb went off right after halftime. There was a play where Taylor effing Martinez split the safeties for, I think, an 80-yard touchdown run right out of the gate. And any wind we had left in our sails was completely gone at that point. Everyone on the defense looked like they weighed about 300 pounds trying to run him down on that play. And uh, I don't even know that the rest of the half, the rest of the second half, you know, bears reliving at this point. I think, Clint, you said it, you know, you said it off air that that probably the least fun you've ever had as a K-State fan. I was at the, uh, I was at the game in Lincoln uh, in the Ron years when they hung 73 on us. I was at the game in Manhattan when OU blanked us 55 nothing. Those pale in comparison to how crappy I felt after this one. And I've said it a hundred times, from the absolute depths of my soul, 
I hope that program goes 0-12 every single year. <laughs> yeah, they're this the second half, the wheels fall off so quickly. Taylor Martinez, 80-yard run right up the gut, make it 24 to 3. Cats go three and out. Nebraska gets it right back. Roy Hallou rips off a 68-yard run, makes it 31-3, and that's pretty much all that she wrote. Uh, Case, <laughs> I, I just have to laugh at this. Looking at looking through the box score, down 31-3, we kicked a field goal <laughs> with <laughs> with um, uh, less than two minutes left in the third quarter. But uh, there's not much to write home about in this one. Uh, K-State's offense, again, very well bottled up throughout the entirety of this contest. They only rack up 315 yards. Nebraska on the other side of the coin, 587, 451 on the ground. And again, much of that damage being done by Taylor Martinez, who at that point in time had racked up a career high 241 yards on just 15 carries. So every time he's touching the ball or every time he's carrying the ball, he's taking it over 16 yards. So this one was a tough one to swallow. Again, I, and Nutter, to your point, I think the buildup and, and kind of the, the way that this call crescendoed with Nebraska coming in ranked, and, and you really did, I think a lot of fans were trying to kind of fool themselves into that old illusion of those those games that we were seeing in the late 90s and early 2000s when these programs were on fairly level footing as far as talent and, and particularly the coaching side of it as well. And we wanted that to be the case this year. We wanted this to be another great matchup. And, and, and again, Bo Pelini is leading the charge for Nebraska at this point in time. But we wanted to just see one of those classic K-State Nebraska games that we that we were treated to so often in the, the Snyder-Tom Osborne and Snyder-Frank Solich uh, rivalry. But we just do not end up getting it. And, and Clint, I'll come back to you on this. I know we've talked about how deflating this game was, but... What are your feelings as we move forward and look to the rest of the schedule after this one happens? Because I know I, I was probably, uh, you know, this is always such a tough one to swallow, but you really felt like, man, is, was this a team that maybe had a dark horse chance to win the North and then it just all goes right out the window so abruptly? Yeah, the wheels for the defense just had completely fallen off. I think in the previous pod I had mentioned about the team seemed like they were back to their they were their ways of their nineties, maybe not as talented, but they were hitting hard. They were flying around and this year just did not look like the same team. Um, giving up 451 yards of rushing to Nebraska just had me completely deflated for the rest of the year. And another as K-State takes the 48 to 13 L they move now to another Thursday night game against the Kansas Jayhawks. So this is this is after Mark Mangino was unceremoniously uh, terminated <laughs> at KU. Turner Gill in now as head coach for the Kansas Jayhawks. And I was pretty nervous about this one. And I think uh, to a man, uh, just about every K-State fan is, is nervous going into the game against KU because the stakes, if you lose, are so high. But the stakes, if you again, if you win... You don't really, it's not quite as satisfying. Now, this was also a KU team that had been through a, a weird ebb and flow to the season to start off with. They lose their opener to North Dakota State and something we can't really talk about, but we can, we'll come to that here in a couple seasons. So they lose the opener to North Dakota State. Then they, and then they come back and beat a 15th ranked Georgia Tech squad. So nobody really knows what to think or feel about this KU team. 
heading into this Thursday night game in Lawrence. But K-State puts this one away very early. Uh, it is three, uh, three nothing after just the first quarter, but K-State ends up lighting up the scoreboard in the second, and they do end up running away with what, this one. And Alex, I, I got to say, this was just uh, this was a fun one to watch. And as deflating as it was, again, when he had that that nostalgia factor kicking in the week prior with K-State Nebraska hooking up big national stage and you just get smacked by five touchdowns, you do equally have that that same kind of energy come back the following week when you go and you just blitz KU and Lawrence like you did back in the day. Yeah, this was definitely well needed after the debacle against Nebraska, which, by the way, just one of the reasons that's like my least favorite game ever is the fact that we haven't played them since and who knows when we'll ever play them again. But, you know, we're over that. But uh, yeah, Uh, another Thursday night game. Um, Always nervous playing KU. Like you said, you're supposed to beat them. So, you know, if they lose, they don't really give a shit. If we lose, big deal. That that's that's a big bad deal for us. Uh, but you know, if anyone listens to this podcast uh, continuously, you will you will hear me say that I pretty much have a bad feeling about every game we play. So, especially the KU game, even when we're supposed to beat them, but. You know, getting getting on the right side of things, uh, fifty nine to seven, we get uh, kind of a play that we'll all probably remember and see for a long time is the the juke from Tremaine Thompson on the sideline, uh, which was pretty awesome. But yeah, it was nice to get back on the winning side. We're still five and one, one and uh, two and one in conference at that point. So and. I'll pivot back to you, Clint, because I know we like talking about individual uh, plays and moments and games and whatnot. That juke, uh, I'll be honest, I was at the game. uh, I was sitting student section on the north side, so that was on the sideline, and I I didn't really have a great view of it, but I don't know. I I look back, and I I am very hard-pressed to find a play when I actually having seen the replay and seeing what happened now, I'm hard pressed to find a play that has made me smile as much as that one. And really, and if, if you have any ideas for the two O era that are better, please let me know. But Clint, I, I can't find one. <laughs> uh, it's right up there with uh, this past year, Deuce Vaughn juking everyone on KU all game long, especially a certain linebacker who spurned K state. But yeah, I mean, as down as I was after the Nebraska game, I was right back up after that game at KU. It's my first away game I've ever been to. True away game, I guess. Uh, it's my first experience with Everclear. I was having a good old time, just <laughs> being a total asshole out in their section. Uh, just living it up, having a good time. It's a great game. Uh, you you earned it. You earned it, pal. Don't worry about that at all. <laughs> and I'm sure nary a foul word from a KU fan has slipped off their tongue in reference to you. So no judgment there on this, especially on this side of the table. Uh, yeah, I remember very vividly after uh, about midway through the second quarter, we pretty much had our pick of the spots in the student section, which was just wonderful. But K-State ends up blitzing the Hawks here in this one. As we said, 59-7 to is the final score. What is the second highest still the second highest margin of victory in a k-state ku game and it's kind of hard to believe that belongs to carson kaufman of all all quarterbacks you think about colin klein you think about 
Michael Bishop, Jonathan Beasley, L. Roberson. You think about all those, and obviously L. led the 64 to nothing blitzkrieg that we saw back in 2002. But it's kind of hard to think about Carson Kaufman owning the second largest margin of victory over KU. But this was a fun one to take in, start to finish. K State. Pretty balanced on the day, uh, 184 yards through the air for Kaufman, who goes 15 of 16 with a couple of touchdowns. And then the Cats rack up 286 yards on the ground. And they don't really need, uh, they do have some turnover luck. They're plus two on the turnover side of things. But one of those was actually a, uh, an 85-yard fumble recovery by Stephen Harrison that went for a touchdown to make it 45 to nothing. But again, just a, a highly, highly entertaining game to watch as K-State just hammers KU from start to finish. They move to 5-1 and one on the season, and then they make a trip down to Floyd Casey Stadium in Waco. And this one was, this is the beginning of Art Bryles' kind of surge at Baylor. Robert Griffin is still not an unknown commodity, but he's not nearly as acclaimed as he was with his Heisman season, obviously the following year. But Robert Griffin and Baylor pretty much rip up this K-State defense. So we've we're we've going we're going back and forth here, kind of a seesaw effect with Taylor Martinez tearing K-State apart in the K-State in, in the quarterback run game. And then K-State goes the following week and just totally limits the Kansas Jayhawks. Now that's obviously not saying a whole lot as this is a very bad KU team. But then we go from the the high of or the low of giving up 48 points to the high of surrendering only seven and then right back surrendering 47 points to Baylor. And also this Baylor team uh, does not punt until the fourth quarter of the contest and Robert Griffin and company end up racking up 684 yards of total offense. It was just really tough to, to watch and to listen and to and this was a game that was not televised. I could tell you that much. And it was a tough one just to, to kind of take in. I remember very vivid, listening on the radio just feeling like k-state was never getting ba- and really <laughs> for three quarters they were not getting baylor off the field but the wildcats do hang tough in this one for for a minute that it's pretty pretty punch 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 back uh through the first and the second quarter uh but then baylor does end up separating in the third quarter and they end up ultimately getting out 47 to 28 in this game and Nutter, I'll start with you here. The Cats ultimately end up losing 47 to 42. They get a very, very, very late garbage time touchdown that doesn't change the outcome of it. Just with a few seconds left in the game, but the, this contest is all but decided. But I don't know how you felt after this one, but I was still very much in that mode of shit, man. This this is Baylor. This is Baylor, and, and all I. I remember as a kid growing up was just K-State hammering Bay. It was like 49 to seven. That was clockwork. That was all that every time K-State played Bayer 49 to seven, that was the score. And now we go to losing this one to them and Floyd Casey. This was a, this was a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. It, uh, this is definitely when, you know, Baylor was starting to kind of buck that trend as like you said, you know, they, they were the cellar dweller of the big 12 for so long. And I think it was definitely a tough pill to swallow, but, uh, you know, you mentioned before, you know, this is Chris Kosh's first year at the helm of the defense. And anytime you uh, allow a 400-yard passer and a 250-yard rusher in the same de- same game, that's probably bad for business. Not great. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> Not great. You know, like, you, like you said, it uh, 
was never really as cl- early on it was, but by the end it was not as close as the score would indicate. Um, I don't know that Robert Griffin was really RG3 yet. You know, I think we were still a little ways off from that, but uh, this was definitely a game that could kind of serve as a springboard for what he ended up becoming, you know, really kind of taking college football by storm over the next year or so after that. But yeah, this one, Really no way, no no way else to slice it. Just another horrendous defensive effort. And and unfortunately, K-State offense really, you know, you score 42, you did your part, you know. <laughs> and 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 to some of that was uh, they they do get a 100-yard kickoff return touchdown by William Powell, but really the offense racks up over 400 yards. Daniel Thomas uh, running the ball pretty limited in this one. He does he gets his with 113, but Kaufman ends up with uh, with negative 19, taking quite a few sacks in this one. So K State doesn't really run the ball the way that they want to, but Kaufman ultimately ends up throwing for 231. Daniel Thomas actually hit a little pop pass in this game for 67 yard touchdown. So offense more than did their part to give K State a chance to win, but we just unfortunately do not see it materialize and get uh, ultimately net K-State a victory. So Baylor picks up the win. Cats fall to five and two. The Bears are actually bowl eligible for the first time since 1994 after this game. So again, kind of a sign of the 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 trend that would we would see over the next couple of years with Baylor really surging and becoming one of the, the preeminent programs in the Big 12. So that sets K-State back to five and two. So still in search of that elusive sixth win to get back to, to bowl eligibility and unfortunately they do not pick it up the following week against Oklahoma State the Cowboys this was a very good Cowboys squad though uh, again this was one year perhaps one year too early in terms of what we're talking about and in terms of Oklahoma State being a big time national title contender but this was still a very good team uh, led by Brandon Whedon and the Cats fall 24 to 14 in this game uh, Alex, I will say it, it looked like for a minute, though, K-State might have the Cowboys on the ropes. Uh, the Cats do actually jump out and strike first in this game, and things just kind of disintegrate, though, for K-State in the second half. Yeah, it was a it was an odd game because it didn't really follow the, the, the blueprints from most of the year. You would think with that defense we had in 2010 that this uh, Oklahoma State team would have put up a lot of points on us. But it was just one of those, you know, you have some games where you're, uh, you feel good about it. And, you know, even when you're down, you still feel good about it. This was one where we, we went up early <clears throat> and then it was still pretty tight most of the game, but I just never felt like we were going to win that game. Um, we give up a couple of, uh, we get a, throw an interception and they return that and kind of put it away in the fourth quarter. But, you know, you were saying Oklahoma state that year, they, they ended up uh, 11 and two that year. So, you know, it wasn't quite the next year when they won the big 12, but they, they finished 13th in the AP poll and we hung with them that game, even though, you know, we had more turnovers than they do. And they, I think doubled up our, almost doubled up our, our total yards for the game. But, just we hung in there on that one. That wasn't what I did to to even be much of a game. So yeah, I very very vividly remember media availability the following week when defensive players are coming out and they're all, all very <laughs> happy and hanging their hat on. Only held them to twenty four, but well, with with 
What's yeah. that? I said uh, one of their touchdowns was an interception return, so the defense really defense only gave up seventeen. True, true. And at, at the end of the day, though, Oklahoma State racks up 511 yards of total offense. And they and that when we're talking about playing complimentary football as K-State really, really leaned into hard in the Snyder 2.0 era, you, you, you can't be that far behind the eight ball. And Oklahoma State was able to very effectively move the ball, win field position throughout the day. K-State really just could not get, you know, get on the right side, have a lot of short fields. Uh, uh, William Powell does score the first touchdown for K-State, as we said, and looks like K-State's going to take a lead into the locker room, but the Pokes get a late touchdown pass from uh, my, uh, Brandon Whedon to Michael Harrison, and then they stretch that lead to 17-7 to in the uh, uh, through the third quarter, and then, like I said, that pick six kind of seals the deal. DT gets a late touchdown run for the Cats, but it was pretty much done from that point on. So K-State falls to 5-3, and three, and now 1-3, and uh, excuse me, 2-3, and three, in Big 12 play. So the Cats still searching for that sixth win to get to the bowl eligibility status. They do, however, finally pick it up the following week in a game that is very, very entertaining for some unique reasons. And and Clint, I know we we look back at this one kind of fondly, really kind of the first, the the coming out party for Colin Klein. And very interesting to see the way K-State approached that that, uh, game against Texas offensively. Yeah, Colin Klein gets the surprise start. I don't know if the game plan would have been pretty similar if uh, Kaufman would have been the starter, if they would have tried to throw it a little bit more, but it worked out for K-State. Just throw it four times and run the ball down their throat. Uh, It doesn't help that you picked off Gilbert five times, a future NFL quarterback after he transferred to SMU. Uh, you know, this is Klein's coming out party, but it was also a little bit of Ty Zimmerman's coming out party. He had struggled early in the year when he uh, came in playing safety, but uh, getting two interceptions along with Hartman getting two interceptions was a big help. And strangely enough, Texas was actually ranked coming into this game. They were ranked 22nd. They were four and four. And this this was a bad Texas team. They took a huge step back and I cannot overstate that enough they took a huge step back from the national title squad that was uh, uh that they had back in 2009 this ut squad only ends up going five and seven k-state hammers them in this one daniel thomas rips off a big touchdown run on the cats opening possession um i i do kind of look back at this one and chuckle when i just i see that stat line colin starts the game goes two for not a uh, two for four for nine yards k-state actually out came by a hundred and almost 150 yards in this one but again plus five in turnovers you'll you'll win just about any game and case state ends up hammering texas in this one 39 to 14 very funny play that i think again only a, a geek like me and the rest of this group would know k-state has a botched pat after the touchdown to make it 30 what would at that point was 37 to nothing josh terry actually ends up scooping up the ball running in for the two-point conversion to make it 39 to nothing so that's how you get that wonky number there uh, but that's one I, I don't know why that play just always sticks out very vividly in my mind. An, an unsung play of the 2010 season. But K-State does get to bowl eligibility status on this uh, after picking up this win. And, and Nutter, I wanted to ask you now, what's I, I think at this point, are we are we feeling that K-State just collectively when we take kind of st- uh, look at it through the lens of 
of what Snyder 2.0 has been? Do we feel like K-State's, even though the defense is so porous, do we feel like we're moving forward? Because I, I, I still kind of had that feeling in the back of my head. You know, I'm, I'm trying to see all the positives, but I do feel like this group was ultimately taking a step forward and getting back to bowl eligibility kind of cemented that. Sure. And doing so, you know, with still a couple of winnable games left on the docket, right? I mean, at this point, you're thinking not only are we going bowling, you're thinking we might be able to improve our stock a little bit. So, I mean, yeah, I think definitely the excitement was still there. You know, it, it had been a very roller coaster year for the deep defense. But, uh, you know, all in all, still you're sitting there with six wins in the first week in November. I mean, it's hard to feel hard to feel too terrible about that overall. And I will say, um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, you, you, the defining moment of that season comes in a game where our defense has more catches than our offense. Right. I mean, that's just I can't stress enough how hilarious that truly is that. We have more picks than we do passing attempts. You know, I covered high school sports for several years after college and uh, definitely reminiscent to a box score I'd be typing up at Tonganoxie High School. So, um, yeah, I don't know, just definitely a uh, a feel-good game for a whole bunch of really weird reasons. But, yeah, to answer your question, um, yes, I do think that there, you, there was still an overall feeling that this was headed in the right direction. Unfortunately, you know, as we'll find out, it didn't necessarily take another step further, but at this point in time, I think you felt pretty good about the potential of reeling off seven, maybe even eight wins, you know, headed into bowl season. It was absolutely on the table for the squad too. And, and, and they, they take that, that, that momentum into the, the final stretch of the season. So we're into the fourth leg now. So uh, cats have three consecutive road games to close out the 2010 regular season. One of those is at Mizzou. So the tigers are ranked 20th in the country. Again, this is a, a this is not Chase Daniel good Mizzou, but this is still very solid MU football team. They, and Mizzou ultimately ends up uh, picking up a 38 to 28 win over the Wildcats. And and they, uh, I'll be honest, this was another game that I was fortunate enough to attend. It, it didn't seem like Mizzou was very in it, to be honest with you, because this is a con. As the Tigers do jump out, get the first touchdown uh, pass from Blaine Gabbert to TJ Moe. But then we go seesaw. We go back and forth. So K-State strikes back. DT gets a touchdown run. And then we're going back and forth here throughout the the second quarter. And K-State is down 21-14. to 14, But they're driving, looking to make it 21-all going into halftime. And then, unfortunately, we end up with a, a, a play that probably ends up defining this game is Carson Kaufman trying to sneak it in from the one ends up fumbling. Mizzou gets on it right before halftime and takes the momentum into the locker room. And then the wheels, unfortunately, come off as the Tigers get a 53 yard fumble return touchdown uh, midway through the third quarter to go up by two scores. And while this was was a better unit collectively on the offensive side. We had more weapons to throw to, obviously, with the likes of Harper, with Broderick Smith, Aubrey Quarles. Um, we talk about Andre McDonald, Travis Tannehill. We had some pretty nice weapons and also Daniel Thomas out of the backfield. Uh, unfortunately, this is still very much this isn't a unit you can't really depend on in the passing game. And Missouri ends up stretching that lead out, unfortunately, all the way up to 38 to 14 uh, at the, pretty much at the start of the fourth quarter as TJ Moe hauls in another touchdown pass from Blaine Gabbard. But K-State does punch in a couple of late touchdowns to make this one look a little bit closer. But 
ultimately it results in a 38 to 28 loss for the Wildcats. But we do see Alex uh, late in the game. We see Colin Klein uh, after, again, some spot duty for after starting the week prior and then the the ball being turned back over to Coffin to start for this game. Uh, we do see Colin Klein make some plays late in this one. And, and again, we see some encouraging signs, albeit in a defeat. Right. Uh, you know, Klein ends up rushing 18 times for 141 yards in this game. And he throws a, I believe a 35 yard uh, touchdown pass to Adrian Hilburn. So, you know, that, that kind of shows, what are you four for six for 65 yards? So, you know, he's still not throwing the ball a whole lot, but you know, he's, he's going out there and, and making plays for, for an offense that, you know, has a quarterback as quarterback number one, who uh, really struggled with ball security in this game. With that said, we'll move forward now into the, the final conference game of the 2010 season, a road trip to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Again, I hate Colorado with every fiber of my being. Dan Hawkins was actually uh, fired in uh, the week prior. Now, can anybody tell me the game that resulted in Dan Hawkins getting fired? Kansas Jayhawks. Yes, this was a game that Colorado led by 28 points in the fourth quarter, 45 to 17. And you know, those, you know, that prolific Turner Gill offense is known for ripping off 35 points and they do just that. So KU ended up winning that game 52 to 45. And that's ultimately what, what results in Dan Hawkins uh, getting the ax in Boulder. So this was a game and, and Nutter, what I think you kind of hit on it a little bit earlier where you felt like, Looking at the end of the season, you you felt like you had the North Texas game. I think everybody felt pretty confident that would be one that would be in the bag. But this was the one where you felt like you could go and pick up a win in, in Boulder against a team that was pretty lackluster and it hadn't really performed all that well throughout the 2010 season, had Colorado. Unfortunately, it doesn't end up happening. And again, this is kind of the recurring theme of the 2010 season uh, for Kansas State is if you look at the box score, what do you see? You see another running back ripping up this Kansas State defense for damn near 200 yards. And Nutter, bonus points if you can tell me who it is. Uh, it was, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his last name. His first name was Rodney, and I'm blanking Stewart. on his last name. Rodney Stewart. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, you mentioned the 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 meltdown that Colorado had the week prior. I think ultimately that might have been what did K-State in in this one. Um, Colorado was very ho-hum that year anyway, uh, but we are going in there on their senior day uh, in what is obviously their last visit from the Cats. And a little bit of an awkward moment. I was at the game, uh, so I got to see all the senior day festivities, and they they lined their seniors out on the field there. Well, this uh, their, their quarterback that year was uh, was Cody Hawkins, Dan Hawkins' son, so it was a little awkward that their coach was uh, their very recently fired coach was actually on the field simply as a parent at this point. So you know all of the uh, the players are coming out hugging the interim coach, and then running clear across the field because of course that's where he was positioned to hug their you know very 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 freshly let go former coach. So a little bit of an awkward moment there. Um, but then, you know, you mentioned Rodney Stewart uh, in the press conference after the game. 
I don't remember the exact question, but somebody asked him, you know, how did, did you feel like you were due for a big day? And his direct quote was, I better have had a good day. They're last in the Big 12 against the run. <laughs> and sure as hell, you know, he goes off for 195, averaged about seven a pop. So uh, I've said it 100 times already on this uh, in this episode, but just, you know, gashed up the middle, completely porous up front. And once again, it, it came back to bite him in the ass. No, I was going to say Colorado did have a pretty good uh, first team all Big 12 lineman and Nate Solder, who <laughs> did end up getting drafted that year. As, but even so, that that's very does very little in terms of offering me solace in this one, because, again, this was a Colorado team that Kansas State, frankly, should have beaten. And they actually get out in this one 14 to three. And I think another thing that the mentality of it, it Clint, when I wanted to ask you about it. We're still talking when you take a step back, we're still talking about a team that's trying to to transition from from one regime to another. I know we talk about how demanding Coach Snyder is and whatnot, but the killer instinct wasn't there. And I think he still had some of that that attitude of the old regime and and the new regime that was maybe conflicting. And K-State got up 14 to three, but didn't really put the foot down on the throat and they let Colorado back in in this one. And I think that was a big part of why this game got away from K-State. Yeah, Colorado just took it away. K-State made it way too easy for them. I mean, the the previous regime uh, didn't instill the kind of killer instinct that was needed to play defense, but they also left uh, just a bunch of holes on defense that uh, Bill Snyder tried to fill with uh, Juco guys, and it, it took a couple years for those uh, hits to come through. Just guys like Alex Rebeck, you know, might have been great in 1992 as a linebacker, but he <laughs> wasn't getting the job done in 2009. Um, you know, great tackler, uh, but he just wasn't a sideline to sideline guy. And uh, it, the defensive line wasn't doing them many favors either, um, you know, throughout the whole season. Uh, there's Every game is littered with 250 yards, 300 yards, 450 yards rushes given up. Uh, they just couldn't stop anybody. Yeah, a very valid point that you make there. Try, that you had the again the pieces of that defense that we would see in 2011 and also in 2012. The pieces were were on the roster, and again we talked about playing some of that youth and how beneficial that was. But in the same breath, when you play young guys, you're going to have players who aren't going to be gap sound. They're not going to know their keys and uh, how to, and you're not going to have perfect alignment every single time. And that, that was a big reason why this game got out of hand and got away from K state. So the Wildcats, as we said, they go up 14 to three, but Colorado ends up ripping off 27 in a row to go up 30 to 14. Uh, K state does mount a charge though, late in this contest. And it does, it is competitive. This is not like the Missouri game where K state got down, 38 to 14 and then had a couple of late scores to make this one look closer. This was absolutely a game late in the fourth quarter. K-State had closed the gap at the 647 mark after Chris Harper hauled in a touchdown pass from Carson Kaufman, a great catch by Harper in, in that, um, that North end zone where I, I very vividly remember plenty of K-State fans that had made the trek up to Boulder and K-State's just begging for a stop. And we have a very, critical penalty by Brandon Harold, a personal foul that extends a drive for Colorado and more or less allows them to kind of salt away the, the remainder of this game. And again, this is another one offense does its job. K-State racks up 411 yards offensively. Uh, 
uh, has over and uh, Kaufman uh, ends up with close to 300 passing goes for 270 couple touchdowns no picks but Nutter on the flip side you talked about Cody Hawkins a, a subpar quarterback in the big 12 ranks throws for 202 three touchdowns no INT he's in Colorado also broke out a little bit of trickery too with Rodney Stewart throwing a touchdown pass in this one so Nutter, you might have mentioned you, you might have hit it pretty well on the head there this might have just been the right cocktail of a team that might not have been super invested but you lose your coach and sometimes that I can weirdly galvanize your players. And I think that's probably what ended up happening here in this one is K-State drops a 36 to 44 decision to Colorado to fall to six and five on the season. Cats end up three and five in big 12 play. And as we touched on though, they do end in the season in a, a weird spot and a, a game on the road in Denton, Texas against UNT. And can anybody tell me, the running back for North Texas. So Mr. Lance Dunbar. How many yards did Lance Dunbar rack up against this K-State defense? (laughs) (laughs) Way too many. And Daniel Thomas and Lance Dunbar uh, actually went toe-to-toe in this one. Uh, (laughs) This was, I I watched this on a a torrent uh, and was pulling my hair out the entire time. I had gone to the KU Missouri game at Arrowhead with my family and I'd come back to watch this game at my uncle's place. And I'm sitting here watching this on a torrent stream and it's just God awful at every single play Lance Dunbar, the, the very widely known Lance Dunbar who wrecked conference USA that year. Uh, this is a little bit of hyperbole here. Um, Lance Dunbar goes for 270, upstaging Daniel Thomas by just one yard. But the Wildcats are fortunate enough to pull out a victory after getting down in this game 20 to 7. K State does come back, and they ultimately get up in this one uh, by uh, two touchdowns late in the third quarter quarter they get up 42 to 27 and hold on for dear life uh, strangely enough we have uh, an oddity you don't see very often we have a after k-state gets that touchdown to go up by 15 they give up a kickoff return touchdown and then aubrey corals immediately returns the favor and takes the ensuing kickoff back to so the cats go up 49 to 34 again k-state holds on in this one but again just a stat line that we saw all too often this this season. Lance Dunbar, 22 carries, 270 yards, averages 12.3 a pop, has three touchdowns. Daniel Thomas, though, more than does his part, gets a, a workhorse load here of 36 carries, ends up racking up 269 yards, a couple of touchdowns. Kaufman has a rushing touchdown. Colin Klein has a rushing touchdown. Nutter, your boy, give ball Braden. Braden Wilson gets a TD in this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that does wrap up the regular season for K-State. They finish out with a 49-41 win over North Texas. This was bad UNT team. They were 3-9 and nine that season. And I think you had a K-State team that was probably just, at that point, they were just kind of done with it. But they were so vastly out uh, <laughs> talented and superior talent compared to North Texas. I think that was probably the big deciding factor here. If North Texas had maybe an uptick in recruit, uh, uh, recruiting a couple years earlier, they might've been able to grab this game from K-State. But fortunately that doesn't end up being the case. And the cats end up finishing seven and five and Alex, they get an invitation to the pinstripe bowl. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I know John Curry was very big in, in pushing this and how big of it, again, that 
this was kind of this was part of his whole mo for K State was he w- he was obviously very big in fundraising was big into exposure he was the, the very impersonal things that we're talking about the things like we, we're talking about money we're talking about brand we're talking about all these things how did you feel when K State got the invite to the pinstripe bowl Alex uh, I don't remember the specifics on you know kind of pecking order that year and if we got you know slid lower than what I thought. I just always thought the pinstripe bowl was dumb. Like, why are we playing football in a baseball stadium in the Northeast in December? You know, December. <laughs> the whole thing never made any sense. But, you know, that bowl was, I don't know if that was the inaugural one or like the second, maybe third one. I don't know. It so, was the inaugural pinstripe bowl. Was it? Okay. So yeah. I thought the idea of the pinstripe bowl was dumb. As far as us getting selected for it, you know, I kind of just, Somebody's got to go to it, and there, it's a Big 12 affiliated bowl, and uh, we get stuck with it. But you know, it was good to be in a bowl game. So, Justin, Clint, any different thoughts from you guys? Yeah, I uh, had the quote-unquote uh, fortune of of making of making this trip for the Collegian. And Jeff, you've said it before; it's not about the experience; about it's about the journey. Uh, I can confirm both were absolutely terrible in this case. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but there were some pretty nasty weather, but then we get up there and we find out we knew we were going to be in the baseball press box because as, as Alex alluded to, we're playing this damn thing in a baseball stadium. Um, but what we did not know until we got there was in December in New York city, excuse me, the Bronx, this press box had no windows. Um, so we're up there trying to type and, you know, tweet and, you know, keep stats and everything uh, in our coats and gloves and everything else. Um, and coincidentally, we were positioned behind one of the end zones. You know, typically a press box is somewhere in the vicinity of the 50. So you're actually watching uh, you're watching the game go left to right, right to left. This one, the, the, the play was either coming right at you or it was going right away from you. Right, right, right away from you. And um, obviously the, 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 the one that everyone's going to remember from this game Kaufman hits uh, Adrian Hilburn down the sideline. Uh, K-State's down eight with, you know, try, trying to claw their way back into this. And uh, Hilburn down the sideline for the touchdown. But from what we could see because of the position of the press box was a defender kind of latch on to Hilburn as he went into the end zone and kind of shove him away, you know, kind of in frustration frustration or disgust. And um, then we see a flag fly, but the, the players come, they're out of our view. They had run uh, basically into like the, the the temporary stadium wall, blocking them from the press box. So from what we saw, it looked as though they had called uh, called on sportsman like on the defender, and it was going to move K State that much closer for that two point try. Um, obviously, everybody here knows what happened next. Back it up fifteen yards. Any chance of that two point goes out the window? Really, again, kind of capping off uh, a disaster trip, really from start to finish. Not just for you know, media members or me personally, but really just kind of a forgettable experience overall, I think, for the program. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us were probably excited about going to a bowl game after the drought between 2006 and 2009. But, uh, you know, you hear that you're going to New York in December, you think, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, I, I was pretty pissed off when they announced that, but I was very happy that we were bowling again. 
if you would have told me that after two years of Snyder being back, we'd be in the bowl game, even if just seven and five, I would definitely have taken that. So I was in a good mood going to going into the game, uh, even though I couldn't go to it. But uh, yeah, the, that last little bit definitely left a sour taste in the mouth. And more power to you, Netter, for making that trip out there. <laughs> I think maybe no. the most memorable uh, was in the press conference when it's the first time I've ever actually heard a coach say literally no comment. Um, that, that was that was that was Bill's remarks when asked about the salute play. But then I was kind of scrolling Twitter, uh, you know, after coach had spoken and we were waiting on player availability and uh, we were getting some love, obviously, because, you know, bowl season, you're going to attract some viewers you don't normally have. And uh, I don't remember the exact quote, and it's actually since been deleted. But even the likes of LeBron James had to weigh in on how how bad K-State got screwed on that play. So, uh, yep, that's. If nothing else, we got some love from LeBron that day. You know, I was just going to say that that uh, ultimately winning a pinstripe bowl probably is pretty meaningless. But uh, the fact that we got kind of screwed on such a bad call probably gave us more recognition than just winning a mediocre bowl game. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's tough to in the in the moment you're like pissed because you just got a game. You know, you pretty much just lost a game on a bad call. But uh, and obviously, it's not a pivotal pivotal game where that controversy is going to live on for years and years. But, you know, for, for the night or the week or whatever, um, it probably gave us more exposure than just winning that game would have. Um, the, the one thing about that game though, is do you guys remember after we failed on the two point conversion, we actually recovered the onside kick and then they called us for offside and, like live, it looked really good, and I don't think they like. I remember them not showing any replays. I was like, "Can I not see a replay to see if we were actually offside?" Because pretty sure we pitfalls of a baseball stadium broadcast because you probably have have cocked up camera angles too. <laughs> well, since they never showed a replay in my mind. We got screwed over on that call as well, so I'm gonna go with that. I would uh, not I have remembered say, that till you said it, Alex. But now that you say that, I do remember it. Yeah, shape it of the 2004 Fiesta Bowl too. Uh, play that I was going to say K-State got an onside kick back with the chance to go level with Ohio State right anyways <laughs> no we're not none of us are bitter none of us at all <laughs> and how do, how do the refs not just huddle and be like hmm, maybe we should pick this flag up you know like I don't I don't get that yeah a bunch of chuckle dicks throw a 15 yard personal foul and this the other thing that sucks though this was a game uh, again back and forth uh, really if you were an objective college football fan just watch just casually watching this this was an awesome game to watch had again if you're offensively neither and both of these teams pretty good on that side of the ball k-state actually finished the year 22nd in scoring offense averaging over 33 points a game so all you people who like the shit on carson kaufman take a take a look at the stats friends uh, but this uh, this game goes back and forth all day long. The, uh, Cats do strike force. Uh, first, Daniel Thomas rips off a 51-yard touchdown. But again, we go back and forth, back and forth. K-State ultimately uh, gets down in this one uh, late uh, with a 33-yard touch, or excuse me, a 44-yard touchdown pass uh, by uh, Ryan Nassib. Demarcus Sales puts Syracuse up 33 to 28. Cuse gets a late field goal to push that one to 36 to 28. But Cats do go down. They deliver. Carson Kaufman fights Adrian Hilburn for a 30-yard touchdown pass. The more than 
infamous salute. K-State gets backed up on the two-point try, does not convert. But again, very fun game and a very, really an entertaining season. And guys, I know we talked about the trajectory of the program. And Clint, I'll pivot back to you. I think we're all feeling very good, especially now knowing how, knowing what was coming in, especially on defensively, everybody's just clamoring, Arthur Brown, Arthur Brown, Arthur Brown. That's all that anybody was really thinking about. Just get us to 2011 and get him. But I, I think this is another step, another mark of progress with Snyder. Uh, as much as, you know, the, we had a lot of games that left a sour taste in our mouth, I think this was a year where K-State does take a step forward. Definitely took a step forward on offense, took a step backward on defense, but there was a lot of help coming in between the next class full of JUCOs and the Brown brothers, especially Arthur Brown, um, looking at the defense. Uh, there was a lot to be optimistic about. There were some things that were, you know, thinking, uh, maybe it's it's not quite back yet. I was uh, thinking probably it would be at least another year before we got to uh, thinking about being ranked. So the 2011 season came as a bit of a surprise, a very good surprise. <laughs> I, I will say this about 2011. I, I think we're all very much looking forward to talking about that season. Um, whenever we all die. We will. You will have to die knowing that it came 19 months too early because the 2011 season took all that time away from you. It was that <laughs> stressful of a season for K-State. We'll talk about that one, obviously, on the next pod. But a couple of things before we book in this one here. Uh, let's do our what-if segment. I always like talking about this and I think the biggest what-if, I know we talk about recruiting-wise, we didn't really hit on it. What if K-State signed Cam Newton, guys, I, I think we all know that uh, the cats, the boosters, weren't going to be willing to make the price tag there. But let's talk about another hypothetical with quarterback. What if K-State had started Colin day one? What do we think happens with this team? So I don't. Carson Kaufman had a couple of plays throughout the season, you know, a pick six or a strip sack for a fump or for a touchdown where, but I don't recall honestly, if those were like difference makers in the game, obviously it, it's, it, it's easy to say that, you know, he's a future Heisman finalist and you don't know what you're missing. Obviously I think a lot of that was still to be foretold. We didn't really know what we had in Colin yet, but uh, I, I think you see a lot more games like the Texas game. You know, the stat line's probably not quite that dramatic, but I think we become a little bit too too much one-dimensional, I think. Um, if, if that's all if that's all the faith they had in his passing ability at that point, that he's only that he's only letting it rip four times in a game. Um, I don't necessarily know that that's the right call. And I've kind of waned on this a little bit because for years that's exactly how I looked at it was how were we riding with Carson Kaufman when we had, you know arguably the best quarterback in the country sitting on the bench. I don't think we knew that yet. I don't think Bill thought he was ready yet. So I don't necessarily know that that's a move that is, that, that makes a ton of sense at that juncture. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you just mentioned that we were a pretty good scoring offense that year. Uh, I don't think Colin was quite the Colin Klein just yet. Um, you know, he, he got, some playing time that this uh, in 2010 and they still, they didn't really throw, let him throw the ball too much. So uh, clearly showing s something in practice about, you know, we all know he had to work on his throwing ability 
you know, all the way through his senior year. So, and then another point I, I would make is um, longevity of the type of player he was. That would just be another full season of, of tackles he's taken on. And, you know, who knows if in retrospect, if he's the starter in 2010, if he is even healthy enough to play in 2012. So, and I just think the way the defense was, we probably needed someone to sling the ball that year. I've gone back and forth on this. Uh, Originally, my thought process was that, you know, Colin Klein wasn't a polished quarterback. He wasn't ready. Uh, Best case scenario, we win the same amount of games. But I'm thinking about this a little bit more, that this team was so set up to run the ball. You know, you look at this offensive line, and there's no stars on it, but you got five quality players. You got some really good blocking wide receivers with Quarles, Harper, Broderick Smith. Uh, I kind of would have liked to see what we could have done. Um, yeah, the injury, the wear is a risk. But, um, you know, 2011 might have looked a little bit more like 2012 that we're thinking, you know, this is a national championship level team if uh, Colin has a little bit more experience. Uh, who knows? Hard to say. <laughs> yeah, it, that that's a very good point that you raised, Alex. Uh, you think about all the carries that he had in those two seasons as the full-time starter, and adding another year on top of that, I, mm, <laughs> that's 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 definitely worth noting there. But I mean, the other the other thing I kind of always toss out there as a what if is Broderick Smith. This was a very tough blow. Uh, the transfer from Minnesota comes in and has close to 200 yards uh, receiving through the first few games, has three touchdowns, and then has a season-ending injury against Nebraska. I I tend to think that doesn't really influence the trajectory of the year because K-State, again, Carson, fine enough in the passing game. Having one more weapon, does that make – does that – Say allow K State to make enough plays against Missouri or against Colorado to win the game? Probably not, because I think really the, what we lacked more than anything else were just we, you. You had so few true difference makers on defense, particularly on the defensive front. I know we all had hoped uh, Brandon Harold. He, he does kind of reemerge after being that after having that freshman All American season way back in 2008. He does kind of reemerge and make some plays for this K State defensive line. But again, you're you're throwing some undersized guys in there, and and Ralphio Guidry and and Prezel Brown, and you just really did not have the the horses that you needed to to make plays to move guys and, and set this and set the tone up front on defense. So I, I don't really think that having Broderick Smith would have made any kind of real uh, drastic impact. Uh, for that 2011, or excuse me, 2010 squad. But we'll move forward to our, our question here that we always ask in these episodes. What player on the current 2011, uh, excuse me, 2011, 2021 cats would you put on the 2010 cats? And what player on the 2010 cats would you put on 2011? I'll open it up here and let's go roulette style. Let's go. Alex, you're first. Uh, let's see. I would, uh, you were talking about Broderick Smith and that 2010 team, um, and how he, his injury probably doesn't make much of a difference because I think that 2010 team had a pretty good stable of receivers. And I think I would be pulling, uh, if we're using just 2010 stats, uh, probably be pulling Aubrey Quarles and putting it on this team. Just because I think that's what the 2021 team really needs is 
you know, a real solid receiver, someone that can stay healthy and uh, produce. You know, we I think they have potential for 2021, but, you know, we're not quite sure. And then um, taking a, a player, I'm going to put a guy who hasn't even played a game for K-State, but I'm going to put Tim Horn on that 2010 team just because they, they need a big body up the middle. Bold choice. Bold choice. Clint, go to you next. Uh, for taking someone from 2021, uh, I like the Tim Horn pick. I think he's going to be a stud for us. I hope I don't listen back to this a year from now and think, man, wow, Tim Horn. <laughs> Another slightly unknown player, even though he's already played uh, several games in a few seasons, I'll take Daniel Green and uh, put him back on this 2009 te- or 2010 team. Uh, a little bit more athletic linebacker who still has a lot of room to grow. As far as someone from the 2009 team moving to 2021, I think the choice on defense is fairly obvious. You got to go with David Garrett, one of the better nickels that have ever come through uh, K-State. Rest in peace, David Garrett. He put up 15 tackles for loss out of the secondary, which is just unheard of. If you can put that guy on K-State who has a big need in the secondary right now, that'd be a big help. All right, Netter, let's close it out with you. Yeah. um, Honestly, I kind of share Alex's line of thinking with, you know, how lacking this defense was on the interior. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not brave enough to go with a guy who has yet to see the field for K-State. But I am going to go with uh, Eli Huggins. You know, I, he 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 kind of stepped into that role last year, and I think he's due for another big jump again this year. And frankly, he's another body in the middle of that defensive line that just got gashed week in and week out. Seems like we're talking about a 200-yard rusher every single week. Um, and you know, n- not not to make a lazy pick, but I do think David Garrett on the flip side is just such the obvious answer. You know, with with that. Uh, that perceived lack of depth there in the secondary and the playmaker he kind of turned into. And frankly, you know, Clint, as you just alluded to 15, 15 tackles for negative yardage, he was even a factor in the run game, which was, was a big problem for K-State in 2010. So I do think that's, it's a pretty obvious choice and definitely one that I'm going to piggyback on. Yeah. And I, I have to, side with you guys as well. I think the obvious pick is David Garrett and strange 15 tackles for loss is amazing you don't want your guys from secondary men having to make that many stops but I also think that speaks to the kind of player that he was how he he had such an instinct and great nose for the ball and diagnosing plays from his nickel spot that he just he was one he was really the 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 lone bright spot and the lone guy you could really rely on week in and week out he's the obvious pick from the 2010 squad to 2011 but since you guys already took it I'll, I'll I'll pivot and go another direction here i'm actually going and i kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier i think had if you give me a healthy broderick smith for a full 20 uh, for a full season i think having that type of a player that receiver with that type of a body could uh, could be huge for this 2021 squad where we really question what what do we have in the wide receiver core i know we have malik Knowles and sebastian taylor but you're still pretty lean and terms of, of playmakers and I think Broderick Smith was was on pace to put together maybe not a 
thousand yard season, but certainly put up eight hundred to nine hundred yards, get right right up to that one thousand yard threshold. And I think again, a guy who probably would have approached ten touchdowns too, just with the way the kind of production that we saw through those first few games. I think Skyler having somebody like that to throw to would be huge for this offense that is really, really just lacking playmakers, particularly on the boundary. As far as far as players from 2021 that I would put on this squad, I really struggled with this one. <laughs> Guys, I, I really did. Um, and it's it kind of speaks volumes that how we talk about how much the defense gets gashed. But um, I'll go, I'll kind of go curveball here. I'll say, give me Wayne Jones. Uh, again, again, another guy we uh, unproven at his position that we at least expect him to play this fall for K-State linebacker. But this team was really lacking both in the front six or seven, depending on alignment, what we were throwing out there personnel-wise. This team really just didn't have a lot of playmakers on that front. And I think having a guy with his speed, with his sideline-to-sideline quickness, I think having somebody like that to replace an Alex Rebeck, like you touched on, Clint, I think having a guy with a little bit more lateral mobility would be big. For that type of a for that 2010 defense, would it have made a huge difference because the defensive line struggled so much? Who's to say? But I think having a a, a better, a higher, uh, certainly a level up in terms of athlete and and quality uh, there would be a benefit for that defense. That's just my thought. But I want to be want to play devil's advocate and throw a couple of different guys out here mm-hmm. since you guys. Uh, I think the obvious pick though, though, David Garrett and probably Daniel Green, the more proven commodities on either side. But, you know, dissenting opinions make for good arguments. So uh, good stuff today, guys. Uh, before we, we wrap things up, we'll kind of put a bow on this one. Let's talk plays of the year. Clint, if you had to pick one out, out and we've talked about a handful here, uh, what play do you feel was kind of the def- the one that really defined and shaped the season? I don't know if it shaped the season, but the one that I think about the most often is definitely the Tremaine Thompson juke uh, at KU. Um, gone on Sports Center. Um, it's fun just to post that video every few months. <laughs> it's a good discussion. Needs a refresh. Time. It always needs a refresh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daniel Thomas had a million plays where he's just stiff arming people's helmets off, running people over, spinning out of tackles. Uh, you could go with a lot of his plays too. Yeah. Our boy uh, DT after being uh, first team, all big 12 in 2009, second team in 2010, despite a pretty significant uptick in production there. Um, but again, big 12 was pretty stacked. <laughs> offensively in uh, in 2010 uh, offensive player of the year ends up being Justin Blackman in the big 12 but um, not to pivot too far away from what we're talking about plays of the year here uh, Al- uh, Alex I'll let you go next yeah for this season you know we didn't really win a whole lot of big important games this year so I can't really think of any like game defining plays but the the games that I or the plays that I'm thinking of are the the Jarrell Childs two-point two conversion tip pass, uh, the Tremaine Thompson uh, juke against KU, and the Adrian Hilburn salute touchdown. Those are, those are really the three plays that stick out in my mind. You know, they're not necessarily the most important plays of the year, but, you know, that's kind of, those are the ones. Like Clint said, Daniel Thomas had 
you know, hundreds of runs that year and a lot of really nice plays, but nothing really just like, you know, I remember him breaking, breaking away a couple uh, UCLA late in that game, breaking a big run against Syracuse in the, the bowl game, stuff like that. But uh, those are the three plays that kind of stick in my mind. Netter. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously not to, not to beat a dead horse, but yeah, you know, obviously Daniel Thomas had so many signature runs that year. I think the one that sticks out to me is uh, early, early, early in the Texas game. He ripped off a long touchdown run, like within the first minute of the game that really kind of set the tone for, for K-State to run wild in that one. So, I mean, that would probably be his personal defining play. But for me, like in the season as a whole, I think the the defining play you have to go all the way back to week one. Alex, you just alluded to it the uh, the tipped two point conversion attempt uh, against UCLA. You know, I think that really kind of uh, kind of gave a jolt of excitement uh, to the fan base. You know, it really kind of set the stage for what was going to be a pretty fun start to the year. You know, I think we we alluded to it. It was the first non con win against a a major conference team since two thousand three. But it also kind of springboarded the first 4-0 start since 2003. And uh, obviously then set the stage for an eventual return to a bowl game. Um, and then looking even further, you know, further set the stage for a couple of really fun years the next two years. But, uh, yeah, I think I have to go all the way back to week one and that 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 tip two point to keep the lead alive late in that one. And I, too, am going to go back early in the season, and, and, and I did touch on this one. The the Central Florida win, ultimately, at least in my opinion, ends up being the best win on K-State's resume this year. And I, I think that that late last-minute drive, Kaufman going in for the t- uh, the late go-ahead touchdown uh, to give K-State the 17-13 to advantage, which the defense we didn't say this a lot this season. The defense actually does their job and holds up and and keeps uh, UCF out of the end zone and holds on to that lead and preserves the win. I think that play, that dive by Kaufman into the end zone, is my top play of the season. Again, very tough to pick out, but we do have a lot. Uh, we do see a lot more explosion from this offense throughout the season. Again, we talked about it. Carson Kaufman, probably a guy who doesn't get a, his his due credit for what he did throwing for over 2,000 yards, hit 65% of his throws, 14 touchdowns, seven interceptions, led the, again, the 22nd ranked scoring offense that generated over 33 points a game. This is a, this team was a lot of fun to watch offensively. And you just, if you had any kind of personnel up front, this could have been a team that potentially won eight, nine, maybe even 10 games. It's tough to say, but it was Still a very entertaining season to watch, and an even more entertaining year coming up uh, is 2011. We'll actually we'll obviously talk about that next week uh, for next week's show. Just about every game in 2011 seems like it was decided by one score, and, and, and really that does hold up for a majority of K-State's victories that year. But very much looking forward to talking about that, the transition, Colin Klein taking the ring. Ains over at quarterback, emergence of Arthur Brown, Chris Harper starting to come into his own as well. Uh, John Hubert starting uh, starting to pick up some carries in the running back department. Lots of fun things to talk about in the 2011 pod, which will be dropping same time next week, guys. Again, 
we'll we'll, uh, we'll plan on pushing these out each week leading up uh, to, uh, through the summer and leading up to the start of the 2021 season. Do continue to listen and give, give us a follow on Twitter. Again, it's college underscore Kimball. And again, you can find our podcast now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Again, pretty much any app that you find them, uh, you should be able to go and give it a listen. So thank you guys again for listening. Until then, it's been real. Cats, man, if you know, you know. You